Corinthians chapter 9, and we'll have Sean come up and read for us uh, from God's Word. Morning, church. Uh, today we'll be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Uh, though having rights by tradition and law, Paul gave them up to win people to Christ. In this way, Paul modeled for Corinth why they should give up their rights. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake. Because the plowman should plow in hope, and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting." For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, although not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessing. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, 
but only one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly, I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Thanks for reading the Bible for us, Sean, and a uh, big warm welcome to everyone and a big hello and greeting to everyone online uh, here this morning with us. I want to say a big hi to the kids at home. They asked me to say hi to them, uh, and so they put me up for that. Um, especially big warm welcome to our friends uh, from overseas. We know there are a number of people uh, tuning in from Singapore and a few other countries as well. Uh, so we love that you're with us. Uh, let me encourage you, though, to... Um, uh, we're really encouraged by your presence with us online. Uh, and let me encourage you as well to uh, keep tuning into your own church's live stream uh, afterwards as well. Uh, there is a quick slide correction uh, for this morning. If you, if you have the bulletin and downloaded that and uh, you're using that to be able to take notes, uh, just letting you know that uh, in the first point, I, um, I, I uh, mistyped out the, uh, the verses a little bit. Uh, so those are the uh, slight corrections that are happening there. And uh, before we head into uh, today's passage as well, let me firstly give a, let me finally give a big congratulations to Alex and Tammy. Alex and Tammy are a couple uh, with our Clay Fellowship group. Uh, they got married yesterday in one of the smallest weddings I've ever been to. It really felt like a secret uh, wedding. Uh, and so, but it was filled with great joy and uh, I'm really thankful for them. And uh, that was a really nice little bright spot yesterday uh, in the midst of all the kind of chaos that's happening as well. For now though, let me pray. Uh, keep your Bibles open at 1 Corinthians 9 and let me ask God to bless us as we hear this word from Him. Let me pray. Our gracious, loving, heavenly Father, uh, thank you that you speak to us. You speak words uh, to us in times of crisis. Uh, you speak words to comfort us, to encourage us, to challenge us. Uh, to rebuke us. We ask, Father, that this morning as we open this word, uh, that though it may speak a word that is uh, a bit foreign to what we presently feel or what we are presently going through, we pray that you will still speak to us, that your word will drive the agenda for our lives. Father, we pray you'll bless us in this and help us by your spirit to hear your word, understand it, to be challenged to live it out. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, can you think of the most shocking statement in the Bible for you? The one thing that the Bible says clearly that you find personally shocking. I know some friends of mine who found the statement, I am that I am shocking because they were atheists. Uh, they didn't believe in God. I know some Christians who find the phrase an eye for an eye shocking because they themselves do not believe in violence. For me, one of the most shocking verses contained in the Bible was read out last week from Pastor Ben. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 13. If food makes my brother stumble, gulp, I will never eat meat. Now, what could cause Paul to say something so shocking? Well, from last week, Paul was motivated by love. 
love of God and love for his weaker brother. Instead of stumbling someone who didn't yet know any better, he would rather never eat meat again. Now we start with this recap because as we open up chapter 9 with a bunch of rhetorical questions, it's as though Paul is in the middle of a conversation, which he kind of is. See, chapters 8 verse 1 through to 11 verse 1 are essentially one long sustained argument in three parts. In chapter 8, Paul raised the issue. Some were using their knowledge in ways that harmed their weaker brothers. Their understanding about the meat they were eating was causing younger Christians to sin against their conscience. And so Paul says rather emphatically that if this is the case, then he'd rather never eat meat again than cause his brother to stumble. And so Paul's first question in verse 9, chapter, no, sorry, chapter 9, verse 1, picks up from this idea. Paul has said that he would gladly give up his personal right to eat meat if anyone was stumbled by it. So, does that mean that Paul is not free to do what he wants? How would you answer that first question in verse 1? Am I not free? Well, um... But before you get a chance to answer that question, Paul asks another series of other questions, more rhetorical questions, and more questions where the answer is assumed. Am I not an apostle? Yes, you are an apostle. Have I not not seen our our Lord Jesus? Yes, you have seen Jesus. Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? Well, yes, you are. And in verse 2, the fact that they, they, they are in the faith, that they believe Jesus, demonstrates that they are his seal of apostleship. And so in verses 1 and 2, you've got this rapid, clear argument from Paul that he is an apostle. And he goes on in verse 3 to defend himself, that as an apostle, he is not only free, but he also has what I call common sense rights. Verse 4, does he have a right to eat and drink, that is, to nourish himself? Well, yes, of course he does. Every, that's a basic right to everyone. Uh, verse 5, does he have a right to bring along a believing wife like Peter did? Yes, he does. Now, Paul actually never did. As far as we can tell, he was single for all his ministry. But if he did have a wife, that would have been his choice and his right. Then in verse 6, Paul begins to turn up the heat. He goes from general to more personal. Uh, Verse 6 has a, a double negative, which is sometimes a bit tricky to hold in your head. But he's basically asking if it's only Barnabas and Paul who have to work for a living. If the other apostles can be financially supported... Why is it that only Barnabas and I have to work as well as minister? Uh, Well, no, they're not expected to do that. But then in verse 7, Paul moves into a set of of general questions to make his general point about benefiting from ministry. And so he asks, if soldiers serve at their own expense, or if a vineyard owner never eats of the fruit, or if a shepherd doesn't enjoy some of the milk of the flock, In these verses, Paul is beginning to answer the question that he left off chapter 8 with. If Paul would give up meat, then surely he's not free. Surely he has some restrictions on him. Well, actually, no. The apostle Paul, as as an apostle, he was not only free, not only could he eat and drink and have a wife like normal people, but as a minister of the gospel, he also had a right to enjoy the material blessings of his ministry. And he's not saying all of this on his authority alone. No, 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 no. If someone piped up now and objected, hey, Paul, those are just your own words. Well, Paul has an answer for that now as well. Uh, Verses 8 to 10 are another quick-fire argument. 
Paul is basically saying that the Old Testament law, as we understand it today, makes provisions for those who labor. You shall not muzzle an ox when it tra treads out the grain. And so that ox, which was pulling this kind of big weight that would grind the grain down into flour, it was against the law of God to put a muzzle on that ox so it couldn't eat the grain. No, God provided for that hard-working beast. And if God provided for that hard-working beast, then surely God would want all hard workers to be provided for. That law, as Paul says, was written for our sake. And he picks up another Old Testament example in verse 13. Those who worked in the temple, they got to enjoy some of the food, some of the sacrificial meat and the grain that would be brought for an offering. And that was good and that was right. And he goes back in verse 11 and 12 with more questions. Look, if we did the hard labor of sowing spiritual things among you, is it too much to ask that we enjoy some material benefit from you? Oh, no, it's not too much to ask. And to cap it all off, on top of all the common sense rights to earn a living from your work, on top of the Old Testament law and the Old Testament example, Paul finishes this part of his train of thought with the words of Jesus. It was Jesus himself in Luke chapter 10 who said that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Jesus said it, that settles it. See, we started with the question of whether or not Paul was free, and not only is he free, but he has a whole bunch of rights as an apostle, chief among which is that he is entitled to be financially supported for his gospel ministry and for the work that he did, for the ministry he shared among them and the disciples he had grown, he was entitled to financial support. Now, before we move on, let me say a few words of application and I want to share, I think, the basic principle that comes out of this passage and I want to look at how this principle is worked out in our current COVID-19 stressed out world. Before I start with the principle, I, I want to echo something that Ben said about this passage a few years ago. It, it feels kind of awkward as a pastor talking about giving money to your pastor. If I was giving this at, talk at another church or even at a conference, it might not feel as awkward, but here we are. My comfort, though, is that I'm not the one telling you this. This is God's Word. And so that comforts me and does make it a little less awkward. So let's start with the principle that the first 14 verses of 1 Corinthians 9 give us. Here's the principle. Paul's words here provide a solid argument and principle for why churches should provide for their pastors comfortably. Uh, one of my ministry friends told me of a conversation he had with his church leaders. Uh, they realized that they had been sizably underpaying their senior minister, their senior pastor, for about five years. And they were working out whether or not they should reimburse the pastor or whether they should uh, up his salary. And one person said, well, maybe we should continue his same low pay. And that way he will trust God more for the shortfall. And if he trusts God more, that will make him more faithful. And my ministry friend replied, would you do the same? Would you live off the same low wage and give away the rest because that would make you trust God more? And I've heard similar stories from other Chinese churches as well. And this is important, especially for our friends listening overseas, for the students among us who will be leaders in their churches one day. And as a principle that our church should have, churches should provide for the material and physical needs of their pastors. 
and it should be of a level to make it comfortable for them to serve so that they can live, so they can take care of their families, and they have enough to plan for their future. And we shouldn't think of it as a wage, a salary, or as pay, uh, because that might tempt us to think that pastors need to satisfy our demands. Uh, Don Carson the, says it this way, the church does not pay its ministers, rather it provides them with resources so that they are able to serve freely. And I think that's a very helpful way of looking at it. And I think that this should also be a priority for churches. There are plenty of things that you could spend money on as a church, but money that is spent on staff, rather than other things, is one of the best investments into the long-term spiritual growth of the church. Now, let me be really clear and really encouraging. SLE Church has been wonderfully obedient to this word from God in this area. So, the principles, uh, of, so that's the principles of these verses. Uh, let me spend a few moments now talking about these principles in the life of our church today. Uh, in times of hardship and discouragement, sometimes when we read God's Word in, a, our, in our normal daily habit of reading the Bible, we'll be given a timely word of encouragement. You know, sometimes when Ben and I come up to preach, when after we've done all our hard work and preparations, uh, someone will come up to us after the sermon and they'll say to us and thank us that that word was timely and encourage them right when they needed it. So praise God for that. Uh, sometimes though, God's word, what God's Word says in our present circumstances might butt heads a little bit. The tone of the passage we're reading might feel insensitive to our present moment. See, this past week, a whole bunch of shops and businesses closed down because of the coronavirus, shutting down temporarily, and some of them have actually shut their doors and into receivership, never to be opened again. Uh, there were long lines outside of Centrelink this week of people looking for financial assistance because they had lost their jobs. There are currently some big financial challenges facing our nation and facing the members of our church. And we want to keep encouraging people to give generously to church, but we know, we know that some of us are finding it really hard and difficult. There are significant financial stresses that are affecting our giving. And that's okay. I'm no economic prophet, but I do promise that even if things get worse before they get better, we as a church will be here to encourage and support each other through it. And your pastors are 100% committed to this, to this as well. We always want to uh, give to the work of the gospel, no matter what. And as a final encouragement, maybe have a flip over to 2 Corinthians chapter 8 in your own time. And read through the encouragement that Paul received from the church at Macedonia, who gave generously to support Paul, even in their immense hardship and poverty. So brothers and sisters, be encouraged, even in this time. Let's come back to the passage now. Paul has set up the clear principle in the first 14 verses. Gospel ministry and gospel workers are entitled to financial support for their work. And as a gospel worker himself, Paul was therefore entitled to receive support from the Corinthians for his work among them. But notice back in the second half of verse 12, that even though Paul has the right to support, nevertheless, he has not made use of that right. Now, why? 
Why did he spend so long saying, yes, I have this right, to now so quickly lay it aside? At the end of verse 12, uh, we read again, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Paul gave up his right to financial support so that he would not put an obstacle in front of the preaching and hearing of the gospel. Now, the word obstacle pictures a smooth road which has been smashed, making it impossible to walk along. In 2013, a a Taiwanese truck driver captured the moment uh, a massive boulder crashed onto the road in front of him, crushing the car in front of him. Now, thankfully, nobody was hurt in the incident, but obviously that road was closed down for a few weeks as they painstakingly removed that boulder from the road. Now, that is the sort of obstacle that Paul wanted to avoid. He says that he would rather die than put anything like that sort of obstacle in the way of people hearing the gospel. And in verse 15, he clarifies that while he was not making use of his personal rights, he was also not writing to subtly suggest to them that they should support him. This wasn't a wink-wink, nudge-nudge kind of letter. So why did he not seek financial support? In other places, he was happy to receive it, like in Philippi, but why not here in Corinth? There is some evidence in history that we've discovered that showed a strong link between financial backers and influence. It was common for traveling speakers to receive money from wealthy patrons and then for those speakers to say flattering things about those, their patrons in public. And so here in Corinth, Paul probably wanted to avoid any hint that the gospel message came from someone other than Jesus and avoid any hint that his gospel message came with strings attached and an entry fee. Again, we know of traveling speakers who would entertain crowds with their speaking skills for the right price. Paul was so passionate about this. You can see in the second half of verse 15, he'd rather die than have anyone deprive him of his ground for boasting. Boasting here is not in the negative sense, but boasting in the sense of being able to say big positive things about God. He'd rather die than let anyone steal away his preaching of the good news of our good God. In fact, necessity is laid on him. In a slightly complex argument in verses 16 and 17, Paul is basically saying he is compelled to preach the gospel. He was chosen specially by Jesus to be the apostle to the Gentiles. And so woe to him if he were to disobey this special calling. The gospel was his inner drive. He was entrusted with the gospel, and that meant preaching it far and wide. And his reward for this work was the work itself. In verse 18, he says that because he didn't take up his rights, his reward was to present the gospel free of charge. His reward is in knowing that the gospel he preached came with no strings attached, And that the gospel was not hindered by unhelpful associations with financial backers. And because it was free, there was no obstacle, only smooth roads for people to come and receive it as is. Now, even though he had the right to support, even though it was common sense that people who work should benefit from their work, even though it was Old Testament law, and even though it was the command of Jesus, Paul chose not to take up that right. And instead, he chose to make his gospel preaching, which he was compelled to do, 
He made it free of charge. No one would be stumbled. No one would have an obstacle in front of them when they heard him preach. Have you ever wondered what obstacles we put in front of people to prevent them from hearing the gospel? Here in Corinth, the idea of financial backing was an obstacle to hearing the gospel, but in 2020, what obstacles do we put? One thing I think our church in particular must always be aware of, we are very Asian. If you, when we gather here, it's very obvious to see so many Asian faces. And so when a non-Asian person comes in, it might feel quite intimidating. Like suddenly they are the ones who stick out. Now we can overcome that obstacle for them by being welcoming and warm. Or perhaps the socioeconomic class of our church is an obstacle we place in front of others. Do we put up a vibe that says if you're not earning X amount or if you're not going to X university or studying in, in these ways that you're not really welcome here among us? Like when we're chatting with our friends at church uh, and a new person joins the conversations, uh, are we filling it with the things that they just wouldn't understand or connect with? Uh, how many times have I stood around with med students when the topic of conversation has always been about something medicine related? I, even as the pastor, I don't feel like I can connect with that. But let us together as a church be resolved to never put an obstacle in front of people preventing them from hearing the gospel, preventing them from joining and connecting in with our community. Instead, let's take a leaf out of Paul's life. In verses 19 to 27, he switches things up a bit. He's, he's established that even though he had the right to support, he freed himself of that right in order to preach the gospel freely. And then in verse 19 onwards, he now makes a radical point. That though he, he, he has made himself freed from his personal rights, he has also made himself a slave to all. He freed himself from his rights, and then he made a, himself a slave to all. See, the word servant in verse 19 is the word slave. He has made himself a slave to everyone in order to keep preaching the gospel to them. How does that work? He spells out the principle at the end of verse 22. Read with me verse 22. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. See, Paul's principle was to become a chameleon, to change his color to suit the environment. Now, chameleons don't actually do that. They change their colors to communicate with other chameleons, but you get the idea. Paul was agile when it came to his culture and his customs. He would adopt what he could, and in doing what he would, he, he would doing whatever he could to try and preach the gospel in a context-sensitive way. See, in verses 20 to 22, he gives some examples of how he did that. So, to the Jews, to those under the law, he became like a Jew, he himself having come from that background. So, as an example, uh, Jews were famous for their kosher foods. And so if Paul was hanging out with these Jews, trying to talk to them about the gospel, when he sat down with them for lunch, he wouldn't pull out his bacon, lettuce, and tomato sandwich. That just wouldn't be right. He was sensitive to their customs, being a Jew himself, so he would adopt some things to not stumble them. And then there were those outside of the Lord, Gentiles. 
When he met with Gentiles, he would adapt and change and be agile again, adopting their customs and their ways so that they would accept him and give him an audience to preach the gospel to them. And he'd do all of this to Jews and to Gentiles, to everyone with one caveat. You see the brackets there in verse 22. He was under the law of Christ. He would do everything except violate his obedience to Jesus. To anything that required disobeying Jesus or changing the gospel, whether he was with Jews or Gentiles, was a no-go. And notice quickly in verse 22 that he mentions the weak, the, the same weak people that we heard of back in chapter 8. Right? Those who had problems with eating meat that came out of the idol temples. This is why Paul said he'd never eat meat. If he was meeting with those brothers and ministering to them, he would never eat meat because that would be an obstacle to them hearing the gospel. Instead, he would be like one of them. Even though he was free to eat that meat, he knew that there was nothing wrong with it, but because he loved his brothers and he didn't want to stumble them, he would be like them. He would not eat it. See, being under, law, under the law of Jesus freed Paul to morph himself to look and to act and to speak like those he was reaching out to. And he did it so that he could preach the gospel without obstacles. A great example of how this was done, or how it has been done, is the example of Hudson Taylor. In 1865, Hudson Taylor founded the China Inland Mission, which is today the Overseas Missions Fellowship Group, or OMF, one of the missions agencies our church supports. Taylor had a real heart for the Chinese to know the Lord Jesus, but he realized and he noticed that most missionaries in China looked like their normal Western selves straight off the boat from England, and they were often associated with the merchants and the administrators and the soldiers that the Chinese collectively grouped together and classed as red-haired foreign devils. The way that missionaries dressed was an obstacle to the Chinese people. And so Taylor started dressing like Chinese people. He shaved the top of his head. He let the back of his hair grow long and wear it in a kind of the traditional Asian ponytail. I'm, I, I've been trying to pronounce this Chinese word all last night and I'm going to mess it up so I won't try it. I'll try it. Is it bianzi? Something like that. Okay. Someone will correct me later in the comments. But this is what he did. He looked and dressed like a Chinese person, and he was heavily criticized for it back home in England. But this is what he wrote about it. In Chinese dress, the foreigner, though recognized as such, escapes the mobbing and crowding to which, in many places, his costume would subject him. And in preaching, while his dress attracts less notice, his words attract more. He even taught his fellow workers not only to dress like the Chinese, but also to adopt their eating styles and their habits and to live among them away from the ports. One academic summarized Taylor's efforts this way. Adopting all these Chinese customs was necessary to overcome the well-founded prejudices against European ways. Or to put it simply, Hudson Taylor was all things to the Chinese in order to win some of those Chinese to Christ. How are you going at being a chameleon? See, the church doesn't come with the gospel, uh, doesn't come with the gospel message in a take it or leave it kind of way. 
we are meant to live and breathe in our communities. We are meant to seek to understand the hopes and the dreams and the aspirations of our non-Christian neighbors and friends. And we learn and understand these things and the questions and the troubles they have with Christianity so that we might morph ourselves to be like them. And in so doing, we can speak the gospel in a way that they understand. Please don't mishear me and please don't drop out that ending. It's very tempting for Christians to go, look, I, I want to dress like people in our world. I want to be like the people around me and forget that it's for the gospel. It's so that we can connect with people and bring the gospel message and the news to them in ways that they will hear and understand and so that we will stop being personal obstacles to that message. And if that sounds like hard work, it is. Paul reminds the Corinthians of that as well in the final verses, like a runner in a race, like athletes working hard. He does not box the air, but he disciplines himself for this work. He works hard, not only at the ministry work, but also in his personal life. So picturing his personal life as a body, he keeps it under control. He keeps pursuing the muscle work, the heavy lifting of holiness and godliness in case after preaching to others, he himself would be disqualified. He works so hard, he works hard so that others are not stumbled, and he works hard personally so that he doesn't stumble before the finish line as well. And there is a great reward for his work. Uh, Corinth was the location of the Isthmian Games, second only to the Olympic Games in the ancient world. Athletes who trained hard, competed, and won uh, were given the prize of a crown, a wreath that was made out of celery leaves. Celery leaves. Now, I'm not exactly sure of the exact significance of that, but it's kind of poetic. The fame and the glory of the win would last as long as the crown of celery did. But for Paul, his reward from God was imperishable. The glory and the joy of his work would last for eternity. Paul worked hard. He gave up his rights. He preached the gospel free of charge. He morphed himself to be all things to all people to win them to Christ. And he did that, all of that work with the end in view. He did it for the sake of the gospel and for the joy of the eternal rewards at the finish line. As you might be tempting as we get to the end of this chapter to, to look at Paul and think, wow, this is, this is radical. He, he was such a trendsetter. But what Paul has done isn't actually spectacularly new. He was copying his Savior. Jesus Christ, who gave up the most privileged position of all, King of heaven and earth. Though he was equal with God, he didn't grasp at what he was entitled to Instead, he stooped so low, becoming like one of us, suffered, rejected, dying in our place in order to serve his rebellious creatures. Jesus gave up his personal rights and died for us freely. And how could Paul, having heard that news, having received that grace and that gospel, then turn around and start charging people to hear it? 
there's no way he'd do that. He'd rather die than leave people with the impression that the gospel came with a price tag. The gospel of Jesus saves us. Our sins forgiven by the shedding of his blood, his death in our place. He died to liberate us from the slavery to ourselves and the slavery to our sin. And he liberates us from slavery to entitlement, from slavery to our personal rights. He frees us from enforcing our personal rights and he frees us to be slaves to everyone that we might win them to Jesus. See, in Jesus' upside-down kingdom, we are most free when we are slaves to all in order to win them to Christ. You'll only do that if you have a grasp of the gospel and an eternal view to win people to Jesus so that you can share the blessings of the gospel and look forward to that imperishable crown. See, if you're living for the here and now, you've got to try and make heaven on earth now. You work so hard to make your life and the life of your loved ones as comfortable and enjoyable as possible. But if we remember that there is a heaven on earth to come, way better than anything we could ever try and make, then that will radically change the way you choose to live now. You will gladly give up your rights. You will gladly serve all those around you, becoming like them in order to show them the beauty of Jesus. There are new rules in place now for anyone who arrives in Australia. You will, if you arrive in Australia from overseas, whether you're an Australian citizen or, or visiting from somewhere else, you'll be taken to a nearby hotel and quarantined under police watch for 14 days. Would you gladly give up your personal rights for 14 days if it meant the safety and the health of your loved ones, of your neighbours? Well, let's turn that up a notch. Would you gladly give up your personal rights for the rest of your life in order to serve people and win them to Christ so that they can share the eternal blessings of knowing Jesus forever and you can enjoy that as well? Would you give up your personal rights for the rest of your life to do that? In this letter, we see Paul in a particular situation, an apostle with obvious rights and entitlements but choosing not to enforce them instead choosing to preach the gospel free of charge, instead of binding himself to his personal rights, he bound himself to other people, becoming like them in order to win them to Christ. And so from Paul's particular situation, we need to ask ourselves in our general situation now, what personal rights and entitlements would you willingly give up in order to be all things to all people that you might win some to Christ? What do you feel entitled to in this life? Maybe you've worked hard and you feel entitled to personal time, the right to enjoy a quiet life, to be free from being bothered by anyone or anything else. Maybe you've gone through the trials of life. You've gone through those pits. You've gone through those valleys. You've come out now and you feel a bit entitled to just enjoying your life now. Maybe you, you're, you're, you feel entitled to see your children or your grandchildren grow up, get good jobs, live stable lives and raise their own family. 
Maybe you've studied and worked really hard and you feel entitled to save up for your own personal desires or save up for that rainy day. Maybe you're seeing people around you, getting into relationships, getting engaged, and you're beginning to feel entitled to a relationship of your own. See, these aren't necessarily bad things, but that whatever you feel you have a right to, the danger in the Christian life and the danger for us Christians is that they can end up driving our lives and driving our decisions. We wrap our lives around what we want and what we feel entitled to. And so then the gospel always comes second. Next week, Paul is going to expand a bit more on what giving up your personal rights and freedoms looks like and the joy of doing that. But for now, we're going to pause there and we're going to reflect and think on the principles that he's laid out here in chapter 9. What Paul lays out for us are some radical principles. He says you don't have he says you don't have to be entitled. You're actually freed in the gospel to live a radically different life. And you get to do that looking forward to the eternal rewards to come. Let me pray and ask us and I ask God to help us to reflect on these things. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus you gave up your rights you gave up your personal rights to come and die for us and come to serve us you surrendered this way and the apostle paul has given us a model on how to do just that as well so we pray father that you'll help us humble us help us to not see ourselves better by enforcing our rights help us to see the joy of giving them up of lovingly serving the people around us, of connecting with them, of being all things to them, that we might not present any uh, obstacles on the way for them to hear the gospel. Help us to give up and to be willing to give up our personal rights for the rest of our lives and to look forward to that rich reward that you will give us in the end. Help us to believe that it will be worth it. We ask these things for your glory and our joyful service of you now. In Jesus' name, amen.